0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to this week's episode of The Broker Breakdown with myself and Mike and a special guest we are going to announce in a second. But, Mike, um, today it's raining, and that means the snow is going to go away finally.
1: Hopefully, right? We hope. You never know.
0: <laughs> we hope. And you know what? Let's hope it stays away at least till next December because we've had a—this year has been weird because— um, I love playing pond hockey, but we haven't had enough cold weather for like the ponds to freeze, but we've had a lot of snow. So it's like been weird because last year it was super cold and we had enough ice to be able to play pond hockey. But we we, I felt like last year we didn't have enough as enough snow as we did this year. So it's like kind of like the opposite almost.
1: Yeah, it's been I think it's been milder just in general.
0: But yeah, with that extra snow, which no one likes. Well, I I won't say everyone doesn't like, but for me, no,
1: no go for me. No, same,
0: same. But this week we have a special guest on the podcast. We got Alex from Tried and True Mortgages here. Um, Alex, welcome to the podcast.
2: Gentlemen, thank you very much for having me on. Uh, Excited to be here.
0: Yeah. So do you want to kind of just introduce yourself to the listeners and kind of tell them what you do on a daily
2: basis? (laughs) Yeah, so uh, my name is Alex Slate. I'm a mortgage broker with uh, Tried and True Mortgages. So we're a mortgage team in Hamilton, Ontario, um, under the Empire Mortgage Group uh, brokerage there. So what we really do is we help Canadians with home financing, uh, refinancing, equity takeouts, and debt consolidation. Um, and we really specialize in first-time home buyers, first-time investors. So we can uh, we can really help people all across Ontario and in other provinces as well, but we specialize in Ontario. So, Very good, very good. And I'm going to probably, I'm just going to kick it right off and
0: say, you know what, like mortgages in the past two or three years, ever since kind of COVID kind of hit have been a very big talking point. I know for myself and Mike, like a lot of our clients have been a little bit worried, I would say is the right word about um, maybe a home that they've owned for a few years or, or trying to get in the market at least. Um, I know we talked about it recently as well that earlier in March there that they Bank of Canada decided not to raise rates again. Um like explain kind of like what's the last like five years look like? Like what like what's the big change you're seeing right now in the market, mm-hmm. let's say in the last five years then?
2: For sure. Yeah. So in the last five years the real estate market has really uh taken off. As, as a lot of Canadians probably know, as as everyone says, we talk about two things, the weather and real estate. Um, so yeah, the, the real estate market has essentially just skyrocketed. So if you look from 20, 2018 and, and just even a little bit earlier up until 2022, we had massive, massive real estate uh, uh, price growth. And it was it was really due to a lot of demand and lesser supply. So the, the demand for real estate kept increasing. And then couple that with in 2020, when the pandemic happened, the interest rates were reduced, lower interest rates with higher demand led to, led to the the prices really um, skyrocketing. And I don't know, it it depended where you were, right? If you were a first time home buyer, just trying to get it in the market, this was a tough situation for you because it made it more difficult, even though interest rates were lower. But if you're already a current homeowner, um, or an investor, this was fantastic, right? Because your home value just uh, uh, went to a place where where we've really never seen. Yeah, um, I was
0: hearing like on the radio and stuff that like, um, you hear it all the time with any kind of real estate, oh, we got like 400, 500,000 over asking. And I was mm-hmm. like, This is like this is insane. Like and I I have a lot of friends too that like I think fortunately for them, like they bought at the perfect time right before COVID. Mm -hmm. And like they bought in Hamilton. Yep. And at that time prices were pretty low. And then even now, like they said like in the last like four or five years, since they've owned their home, they've either double doubled or tripled their
2: investment in just five years. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I can sort of give you the numbers actually approximately where it was. So if you look in March of twenty eighteen, the median household, at least in Hamilton, somewhere in the four hundred and five thousand dollar range. Uh, as of today, you're looking at as of February, I should say, about six hundred and seventy thousand. So right there, just over two hundred thousand dollar growth in, in five years. And that right? was even
0: higher recently, like yes. probably before Christmas too, because I remember there was I was seeing stats of, of Hamilton of almost in the eight hundred thousands.
2: Yes, absolutely. So um, other, other than this last year, prices were continuing to incre- increase from approximately March of 2022 until now, we have seen prices come down. So to your point, I mean, in, in February of last year, uh, right around February, March, home prices were right around the 851,000 mark. Right? Yeah, that's insane. So literally yeah. in
0: a year span, like it skyrocketed. But now uh-huh. we're already seeing it now starting to come down again.
2: Yeah, it's really coming back down to earth. And it's it's probably uh, a better thing that this is happening because it's it should have never went up to that high, uh, uh, those ranges in the first place. It was just really way overinflated. And when things become way overinflated, as people call them a bubble, they tend to pop. And then, uh, you know, worse things come out of that. So
1: exactly. And there was a few things too, right, Alex? Like, I mean, when we started looking at the increases back, I i mean, some of this, the the massive increases towards the beginning of COVID where like kind of that hybrid model came into play. Sure. Where I'm assuming that a lot of people in uh, the GTA that had, you know, uh, were able to work remote, were able to sell their million dollar condo and then buy um, even an overly inflated housing price down here in Niagara, for example. Yep. Right, like the whole value proposition changed, right? Because if you sell seven hundred square feet for a million dollars because other people are, are buying that and you can move in, let's just say forty five minutes to an hour away, yes, and that same million dollars gets you like, you know, a twenty four hundred square foot two story home yeah. that it's it's different than someone living in Niagara or Hamilton being like, okay, I make fifty grand a year. So mm-hmm. like we, it, you know, the whole market, the whole market was just exposed at that point in time, right? So different different times for sure. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And and think about everyone
2: in Toronto, right? If you work in in the GTA and you had to work in an office building down there, and now you could work at home, is there really a benefit to you to live in an area where, let's say, your family is from Hamilton? and you live in Toronto why, why wouldn't you move back to Hamilton if you can work from home right save right. on the drive save on a lot of things uh uh the home prices themselves uh when you work from home now you can you know start writing off some of the office expenses things like that nature so it you like you said the value the value proposition really changed about about work from home versus uh, work in the office and I think a lot of businesses realize that as well
1: yeah. Yeah. And the one thing too, that I I found super interesting as being like, you know, a Niagara resident yep. for basically my entire life was that the way that we viewed real estate down here was, you know, that, that kind of, that housing bubble had always kind of made its way to like, you know, Burlington, Hamilton, mm-hmm. like, it, mm-hmm. but it, there was like always kind of a distinct change between like, you know, going to what was the differentiating, you know, Stony Creek and then Grimsby and then Beamsville and then mm-hmm. like St. Catharines and then Welland. Like it, there was the further you moved away, there was there was there was breaks between what housing typically was for the same types of housing between cities, right? Yes, and like that that basically stopped when when COVID happened because then you could people were willing to move to like you know Paul Colburn for example, Prairie, <laughs> yeah. these places that prior yeah. to it was it, we didn't we didn't do that like aside from like a few people that was not the norm during mm-hmm. that time. Absolutely right. Like like you just said, Port Colburn
2: and, and further places. Why? How could you have ever lived there before and worked? You know, at a physical like location that that was almost impossible to do, right? Unless you wanted to drive an hour or two hours every day. So yeah, to, to your point, a lot has changed, and I do think it, it does bring up a an interesting paradigm of people who already live in a city and then uh, external residents coming to move into your city. Sometimes they've been pricing pricing people out right so oh mm-hmm. yeah for example if you move from toronto and your house sells for it, during the height of the pandemic 1.5 million and now you can get a property in hamilton niagara for eight thousand, you you're laughing right but then it prices out the current residents, so it's, it's, a, it's right. a paradigm and um it, like i said it, there's there's two sides it's great for some people for some other people it might not be so great
0: so the one thing i kind of wanted to point towards and I, I know for myself and mike this has been a massive thing on our end um, sure. with mortgages but kind of the difference of what you've seen um let's say in the last five years um, uh-huh. from a fixed and variable mortgage but also on the private mortgage sector because this is a very big talking point in insurance right now
2: yeah so are you just looking for what what's happening at the rates or, or the sort of the difference what,
0: what are people more going towards like what like has that changed like because again like i think more people at the like before I feel like we're probably going to more fix so they didn't have to worry about it. Nothing was changing that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then variable. I know a lot of people now have been talking about variable, but then again, like all over the news, like a lot of people are talking about um, how private mortgages have skyrocketed and mm-hmm. even on the insurance side. And this is, I tell all my clients, make sure that you are speaking to whoever you're dealing with. If it's myself or Mike or whoever it might be Yep. to make sure that you're finding out if your actual insurance company will cover off a private mortgage because a lot of companies actually don't even insure private mortgages even as a as a primary mortgage they won't even do it as a secondary mortgage there's even less companies that will do a private mortgage as a secondary mortgage sure um so have you seen that kind of like consumer change where people have kind of gone towards a certain area because it is harder now to get a mortgage
2: and they're like oh you know what like it's going to be easier if i go the private route um, it is, yeah, starting with the privates, we have seen a, a tremendous increase in people not only wanting privates, but needing privates. So the because of the interest rate increases, the affordability has really decreased for a lot of Canadians. Um, and so it's forced a lot of Canadians to have to go into those privates, whether it be uh, the, the first mortgage or a second mortgage. Generally, we see it as a, as a second mortgage behind a, a first mortgage. So w- with the privates there's there's different risks and sort of rewards involved. A private it's a lot easier to qualify. you don't a lot of the time you don't need any income verification, you don't need a great credit. It's just you have to have some sort of home equity in in the property or a large down payment if you're purchasing a property. But the risks that come with it are interest rates and fees. So with with interest rates, you're going to be, generally speaking, not everyone is going to be exactly like this, but you're going to be north of eight or 9%, right? And a lot of times they're just interest only payments and fees. You're going to be, uh, I mean, we've seen fees as high as, uh, as high as up to 10%. Now we we try to avoid that altogether. But uh, if somebody's in a really desperate situation and a lender is charging that fee, there, there's sometimes nothing you can do. So that, that's what I would say on, on the private mortgage front. Yeah.
1: There's, um, there's a spot too, Alex, like for the insurance and how it all relates back for those that, you know, are interested. Um, as James kind of touched base on one of the big things that people don't necessarily realize. Mm -hmm. And this is a disconnect between, you know, how it affects the, the mortgage side, right? To the lawyer and then how the insurance all falls into place. Yep. Is that when basically, so people know when you have like, let's say a standard mortgage through a regular, um, I don't even know what they would be called, like a lender, or I, yep. I, is that the right term for like the yeah, top A or B lender? Sure. Right. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So those ones, you're typically not going to get any problems with securing a policy with an insurance company because most of the general, um, standard market insurance companies, that's all fine with them. Sure. The only time that people get uh, possibly into trouble is when options are brought to the table where it says, you know, we're going to have this standard. Um, a lender, and then we're going to attack on that secondary private. So now you have the the you know the big bank or the big lender. You have mm-hmm. your private for uh, just a chunk of whatever else you're deciding to to loan, and then when you call your insurance the day of closing, because this happens quite frequently right now when people like refinance, so yes. you have your 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 two, and the lawyer says, hey guys, bring a confirmation of insurance showing this uh, the second lender. Sure, you start getting in sh- in trouble with insurance at that point because. Your broker or agent might say, whoa, 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 hold on for a second. We didn't know about this. And our underwriting says, you know, you cannot have that second lender on there. Or if it's a private, maybe there's things you have to jump through. Like, you know, what's the interest rate looking like? How much are you are you yep. actually lending? There's all this other criteria, right? So yep. it's there's an element to how the insurance reflects that, that I think general listeners need to be aware of too. And it actually helps, I guess, on your side, when talking to clients saying, hey guys, this is what I'm proposing. Maybe it's smart to reach out to your broker or agent and say, I'm going to have these. Does it have any implications on my policy? Absolutely. Absolutely. With with every approval we
2: give for every every mortgage or second mortgage or whatever we uh, uh, broker a deal for, we always t- uh, inform our clients that you need to go talk to your insurance agent. because Because of those things you just specified, you don't want to run into a situation where, and you guys will know this better than I, where where your insurance your insurance provider cancels your policy or changes your policy right do you guys see that often is it, it policies are, are changed or canceled um when when they find a second mortgage
1: there's okay yeah there's there's definitely a trend that that I will notice and this is just how maybe the transaction unfolds yeah but what typically transpires is when you're adding on that second Usually, the only time that we're probably that we're usually informed is either a by the client or b just by the client's lawyer. And Mm -hmm. it might be like the day of the day before, two days before saying, Hey, we need that, that confirmation of insurance showing so and so added on. Yeah. So the problem that addresses from that all the time is when you're super last minute on that, it puts that kind of broker, that company in a pinch because you might not be able to get all the, um, the appropriate options back in a timely manner to, to to suffice that closing, right? So if a lawyer yes. says, "Hey, I need a binder by three o'clock today," and it's nine, it I mean, maybe you don't get answers it's, back from all of your insurance it's companies, possible. right? That's right. So it's yeah, possible, it's it, it's definitely but it's doable,
0: not, but I, it's not very helpful to us.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I guess my point is, from a client perspective, you're almost you know, kneecapping yourself in a sense where you're not going to be able to get all of your best options so Mm that the price goes up. Maybe it's with a higher risk company. Mm -hmm. There's things that you haven't, that lack of due diligence almost is going to put you in a difficult position.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I I would sort of, I think, relate this to having a pre-approval in a way for mortgages, right? It's good to get a pre-approval long before you're actually looking to purchase so that you know all of your options and you can decipher between what you really is best for your situation. So the same would go with with an insurance policy. I would assume like with our clients we we always after we get them their approval we let them know to get their insurance for your home or start talking to your agent as soon as possible because you don't know yeah. what you don't know. And once they start talking to you guys they'll start to realize okay I might need more fire insurance coverage. I might need more water coverage and and that's not something that can be deciphered in, you know, in a, a matter of 5 hours or 8 hours in a day, right? You 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 need a, a a good week to look at your policy and and see what's best for you. I I would at least assume, uh, and that's probably what I'm guessing what you guys do with your clients.
0: Yeah. And it makes us And just kind of going back to that. It kind of makes us look like the bad guys, right? Because again, you're doing all this stuff. You're trying to buy a home. Like it's a very exciting time. Everyone's getting super excited about it. And then the lawyer, whoever it might be, sends it to your insurance broker or whoever you're dealing with for your insurance. And they're like, Oh, I want this in five hours. Well, then it makes us look bad because if we can't get it done in five hours, and again, like I said, there's always going to be obstacles. Like it's like m- almost everything is not just a true, like do this and done. Right. Like for yes. me and Mike, for example, like it's not like we have access because like, we we represent just like yourself with mortgages. We represent multiple companies and mm-hmm. every company has their different process. So there's some companies that are super easy and yep. you can send in a change like that and it's done like instantly. There's other companies you have to send it in. You have to wait for them to process it and approve it. So if you're dealing with a company like that, then again, there's waiting times on it. But like I going back to what I was saying prior, it makes us look bad mm-hmm. because we're the ones that are kind of holding up that process. But again, if things were done more in a timely fashion, like Mike was saying, then again, we can kind of get all this stuff done well before it's going to close. Like how many people I get that call me and they go, oh, I bought a house. And it closes at, today at noon. And I go, <laughs> oh, how long have you known that for? I don't know, two months. And I'm like, oh, so you didn't decide to call me in the last two months. You decided to call me like four hours before it closes. And like I said, it can be done. But yeah. again, it's putting a lot of time pressure to make sure that – because if you basically at that point, you have to have everything perfectly line up yep. to make sure there's nothing that like might hold up a sale like that so that they can have a house closing. So mm. – If any lawyers are listening, you can really (laughs) send us stuff as soon as you get it. There's more time to process things. I would love that.
2: And and other mortgage agents, I would say, you know, I think there is an onus on us to inform the clients that you do need these things and all the steps in the process. Because if we don't let them know about that, for example, if it's a first time home buyer, you might not know all the steps. Uh, to the process, and that you need a lawyer, and you need an insurance broker, and you need all you know, set up your hydro and all those things. So, I think I think there is an onus on us as well. So, I, I see where you're, where you're coming from there.
1: There is a um, there's a side piece to that too, Alex. That you might see that that we certainly feel on the insurance side. So, yep. with a lot of different lenders, and you might be exposed to this, but you know when. Um a lender talks about you know ensuring that it's this is the loan value, for example, but they also request guaranteed replacement cost yes you're familiar with that yes that's right yep so one the one thing that we 've battled not as much anymore, but it was very, very common for the last like two years is people purchasing either rentals or homes investment okay. properties, whatever they might be uh and i 'm not sure if it's the lender's conditions or kind of where it comes in, but it was you know ensuring that 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 g r c Coverage was on, um, let's say, like a rental. I'll use a rental because that was very common. Yes. And one of the things is that a lot of standard market insurance companies may not always provide that. So, when the this goes back to what we were just chatting about, if we get a binder letter at the 11th hour saying, This is the loan. For example, and it's way more than the actual replacement cost of the house, which happened during those overly inflated times. Uh They would tack up saying, "You know, we need that guaranteed replacement cost uh, added." Mm -hmm. And rentals didn't always qualify for it. They're actually, it wasn't necessarily common um, to see all your markets providing that. Mm -hmm. So, what we would have to do is go back and say, "I can only provide up to this specific limit," Mm -hmm. or you'll have to get you go back to your lender and see if they can maybe remove that term altogether.
2: Yeah, that that definitely makes sense, and I, I've seen that happen multiple times, just just like you have. So, th- so the lenders, when you're getting your approval, will have specific conditions in the approval, and these are these are general things. So, verifying your income, uh, uh, verifying your down payment if you're doing a purchase, uh, verifying your property insurance, and then that's where it comes in. They want to verify that your home insurance will cover that, like you were saying, the, the guaranteed replacement cost. Right. Question for you guys, how long on average would you say it takes to actually underwrite an insurance policy though? Like, a, like just a, a standard
1: home policy for example? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's not long. Like for example, we, because of the way that brokers work, most of our underwriting is front end, basically just meaning that we do it ourselves Okay. and the insurance company um, is there to more or less issue the policy. I see. There's not a lot of back end underwriting, if any, if we've done our due diligence on the front side. So mm-hmm. with all of that into play, if it's a standard home policy for a client, let's say that's had previous insurance before of some, su- um, some sort, yep. um, you know, claims free, the home's relatively newer in age, all of those kind of, I guess, uh, desirable factors. Yes. The home policy could be done in honestly is from quote stage to application, like under an hour. Oh, wow. Okay. Like it's, it's very quick. There's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes that um, people in, in similar industries and clients don't always realize, which yes. is when things get a little more sticky, um, that's when things like anything, like even like mortgages, they'll take sure. longer to figure out a viable option. Absolutely. Absolutely. But to answer your question, it can be done very quickly if all your ducks are in a row and you're kind of that, you know, quote, ideal client for a company. That yeah, makes I, sense.
0: I would say it's almost even like almost on the onus of the client too, because uh-huh. I find a lot of like for me, for example, a lot of the time that's almost put into a policy like from quote to issuing is on the client. Cause we have to wait obviously for their documentation, like banking and mortgage and mm-hmm. like for, if it's a car or licensing ownership, all that kind of stuff. Right. So realistically for me, and I can literally quote it, send it off and it's 15 minutes. But if the, if the client doesn't send it in two or three
2: days, that kind of unfortunately holds up the whole process, right? Yeah. Similar similar when getting a, a mortgage as well, mortgage approval. If, if we don't have all the documents, there's no way we can get you that approval, right? Yeah, exactly. So- if, if, the sooner you can get us all the information and a, as accurate as possible, the sooner we can get you an answer. And it's similar on the mortgage side where we, although we um, do send off the the application to lenders for them to underwrite, we underwrite off, off the start too to, To sort of get an idea of who is the best lender for this client and what are the best options for this client, and because we've sent in so many files, we'll know right away after looking at your file and and collecting your documents. Okay, your application will probably work with lender A versus lender B, and so that's how we can that's how we can really take advantage of having the multiple different lenders um, and and give you the best opportunity to get get approved before even sending it in.
0: I want to go back. to what Mike was saying about the guaranteed replacement costs and sure. how that kind of really impacted the especially the insurance industry because I know me and Mike talked about this a lot um even like last year still mm-hmm. but the really misconception especially um I would I would say like from the whole kind of like buying process like everyone involved like from the real estate to the mortgage to the lawyer and the insurance um broker agent that you're using I just feel like there's so like little communication. and I think Mike mentioned this the other day, like almost like a power team that like there's no communication because the problem was is that when we had these super super inflated home prices, real estate and rebuild costs of homes, like they do correlate, mm-hmm. but they're not exactly the same thing because what people don't understand is that insurance, we don't insure. The value of what land costs, because if you actually di- like dig into what real estate prices actually break down to, a lot of it is land. A, 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 most of it really isn't um, what the what the actual like building is actually worth. Mm-hmm. So you might like, for example. You might have a property in Oakville, for example, that's $3 million, yes. but that home is probably, honestly, might be only worth $800,000 to rebuild. So that was the problem that we were having on the insurance side. And a lot of, like I said, lawyers and, and whatnot were not understanding that because, again, a, a, a client was buying a home for $3 million, but we were only covering it for $800,000, let's just say, for very easy math. Yes. Um but they couldn't wrap their head around that why we weren't covering it for $3 million. Well, it's because the rebuild cost, the home is not worth $3 million. The land in the home might be worth $3 million, yes. but it's not worth $3 million as a property. And that's where a lot of the misconception came from guaranteed replacement costs on rentals is that when the, these prices were super, super high, again, like Mike was saying, rentals, a lot of companies won't offer guaranteed replacement costs. So we yes. were seeing a lot of times where they were trying to get mortgages and trying to cover off a mortgage, but the mortgage was way higher than what the actual rebuild value of the home was. Sure. So we were having a lot of times where we had to like search and search and search to find places in rentals that would be able to either have guaranteed replacement cost or increase the rebuild to what the actual value of their mortgage was. And that was a very, very tricky situation since I would say since COVID, because that's when uh, prices were so inflated and we had this issue
2: yeah that's that seems like it would be able to, it would cause a huge problem right if if you if your um the insurance company didn't want to give over that eight hundred thousand in in your example but the the lawyer required it or the lender required it now how do you guys go about appraising the amount that should be on the property so how did you how do you come up with that eight hundred thousand number mike do you want to answer that Oh yeah, I, I I
0: love
1: this topic actually. Yeah. So <laughs> that's why
0: I asked you to answer because I know this guy's going to be very passionate about it. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So basically, it works out. Um, it works out to be about five or six really important factors now for the rebuild cost, right? So when insurance companies say what's the rebuild, and us as brokers are doing an evaluation tool, there's a, there's a couple big things. So very quickly, you're looking at the year built of the home. Okay. You're looking at the square footage um you're probably asking about you know bathrooms do you have a finished basement mm-hmm. you know we're looking at a wood frame structure or something that's built with like you know maybe double or triple brick like an like an older building um garage th- th- those things so when you're that's the and that's the majority of it to be honest there's little things that updates do help but that's the majority of what goes into the, re- the evaluator so if we take all those things, we don't okay. necessarily manually create a rebuild cost. It mm-hmm. comes in at where the home is located as well as like what should be what the home should be insured for based on those factors. Alex. I see. So, uh, I mean if we get all those things in and it says the home is 700,000 mm-hmm. and of course with the inflated um real estate market, your actual purchase is 2 million, we can't arbitrarily just insure your home for more because the insurance policy is there to protect and insure the, the actual structure itself that's, structure that's what itself. it's designed to do yes so we can't arbitrarily increase that to cover a loan amount because now the, there's two reasons one you, you're just insuring something that doesn't actually exist at that point you can't over insure something just be arbitrarily and that's so right. two A lot of what you pay for as a client is based, so the premium of a policy, uh, the majority of it comes from the replacement cost. So very Mm -hmm. simply, if you had a home that was 700,000 to rebuild and you insured it for like, let's say 1.5 million, and you're basically doubling that amount, you can only imagine what that's going to do to your insurance policy premium, right? right? There's a part of that too. That if you think about it, if unfortunately that client has a total loss, which unfortunately happens, which is very sad, yes, and they lose their entire home, the insurance company's promise and and part of um indemnity is to put the client back into p- the position prior to when the loss happened. So sure. if that if it costs them eight hundred thousand to rebuild, which is what our evaluation is is saying it should, given inflation and labor and all the stuff that goes into it paid for by the, the insurance company, they're going to pay you out to put you back in that position by paying for those expenses. They're very rarely, they're just going to cut you a check for 1.5 to pay off your loan. It, I yeah. I don't think that would ever actually happen. I've never been a part of that. Yeah. So if somebody has extra, extra expertise, it would and saying, it, it that, would not happen. happen, I guess is the point. It would right? never
0: happen because if there's a claim on a building, it's not yep. like the land is gone too. The land's still there, right? Yes. So you could still you can still choose to not rebuild and sell the land and you can still make money off it. Cause like I said, the land still has value, right? Yes. And
1: I guess the, the point I'll bring it back to yourself, Alex, and then it gives back to the mortgage side
0: mm-hmm. is
1: that our, our job is to make sure we indemnify you back to what you had prior to, mm-hmm. um, but it's not to deal with the loan at all. It's to put you back in the same position as what you had happened. So we rebuild your house. Yes. If from a mortgage perspective, you have a clause saying, um, that you have to then deal with maybe a new uh, a new term or new interest rates or whatever the new re- rebuild turns into. Yes. That's between I guess you and the client. We're kind of out of it at that point. For sure. Okay. So yeah that that
2: would that would definitely make sense. And to, to James's point is that you can still technically sell the land, so you can have the property built up to whatever the guaranteed replacement cost was, and then hopefully the land plus the new the new structure would be able to cover your mortgage. Because otherwise, you would you would be in a situation where you're sort of you'd have them.
1: to yeah you have to sell or you have to go through other other means to pay off whatever that that loan difference is. At That's that right. Point. Um, yes, exactly. And there's one actually important thing to bring it back to. You know, if someone's sitting there saying, "Well, if I have guaranteed replacement cost, aren't they just going to pay for it regardless?" Mm-hmm. It's a yes and no answer. The yes part of it, which is the predominant part, is that if you if your broker or agent has um, the insurance value of your home to what it should properly be. So they've done a relatively recent evaluator, yes. and it's eight hundred thousand. Let's say it does end up costing eight fifty because of unknown factors that that unfortunately probably do happen in claims. Mm-hmm. If your property qualified for that guaranteed replacement cost, which most do on standard home insurance policies, depending yes. on age and everything else. But if mo- let's, let's take the example, if most do. The insurance company's promise is that they're going to help re- rebuild or repair the home, even if it's above the evaluation. Okay, so okay. it could be eight hundred thousand that okay. we insured it for. It's going to cost eight fifty or nine. Maybe that's unfortunate. We know we did our due diligence. It's a proper evaluation tool. It's not underinsured by any means. Yes. It just costs more based on inflation, labor, materials, supply yes. chain issues. The list goes on, right? It's still the promise that they're going to repair or replace it. The only time a client might get in trouble in that case is if um, their representative was vastly underinsuring the property. Mm-hmm. And the only time that would happen is maybe your square footage is way off. Maybe the rebuilding construction materials were not remotely close to what a new common thing is. It's yes. just, technically speaking, Alex, it shouldn't happen. The due diligence yep. process wouldn't allow it to happen, but a client could get in trouble if... It costs one point five million to rebuild, and it's insured for eight hundred thousand. <laughs> there is yeah, going to be other yeah. talking points at that stage to say, "Guys, how did this get? How did this get through? You know, yeah. yeah
0: how do we ever get here? And that's, that's right. why guaranteed replacement cost is so important because um, this rebuild that Mike was talking about, um, it it is." Um, updated every year on insurance that they'll usually yes. increase it a few percentage every year, obviously based on how the market is, mm-hmm. but that's why it's nice to have guarantee replacement costs because again, if things skyrocket, like it did in COVID times, like insurance companies weren't going to every home policy and going, <laughs> Oh, this is going up 50%. So, do, <laughs> yeah. so does the rebuild have to go up? They were like, I said, they were only increasing at like maybe three to 5% every year, right? They weren't Absolutely. increasing because if imagine they took everyone's home policies and during COVID and they increased everyone's rebuild by like 30 to 50%, everyone's yeah. premium would have went through the roof. So they can't do that. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's why guaranteed replacement costs, especially during times like this where inflation super high labor's short. So you're basically paying more for labor materials yes. are super high. Again, it would cover you just in case of that uh, evaluation is just, like I said, maybe has changed. Since you actually got the insurance
2: policy, for sure. Interesting. So, another, I guess, another quick question: If you were looking to go to a, a different insurance, like you, you asked your agent, oh, I want to look at a different um, provider. Would they then look at a different price, or would they look at what your home you was previously appraised at? No, we
0: basically go through the whole process again. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. like, let's say, like on renewal, let's say you're renewing April first. Mm-hmm. Uh, we usually get renewals anywhere from about thirty to forty-five days out. And then at that time, we can kind of shop your policy to the other providers that we have as well.
1: I see. Okay, that makes sense.
2: Yeah.
0: And then I we basically how... do
1: the whole process over again. Alex, I, I love that we, uh, we got you on here talking about stuff. And then you have more questions for us, which is great, by the way. It makes for a great conversation. But I love how maybe it, it brings it back full circle too to how important some of the insurance is, even on, or I guess more insight, education on how people through that process, we'll learn more from you as well then, right? And other mortgage agents in that respect. Sure.
2: I think it's super important because it's all so interconnected. Yes. Right? Yes. You can't own a home without having home insurance. You can't own a home without going through a lawyer. You can't own a home, well, you can without going through a real estate agent, but it's not as good an idea, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. In order to talk to your lender, you either need to go right to the bank or you need to talk to your mortgage broker. And all of those things combined make up the entire process. So if, if for example, myself as a mortgage broker, I don't know about home insurance or I don't know about the legal aspects or or the purchase and sale aspects, I'm really doing my, my client a disservice. And I right. think it, it, it goes similar with, with you guys, right? If you don't at least have some idea, then you won't know, okay, um, he's at this step now. Maybe we should be giving him some, some recommendations about what to do next. So yes. my question- yeah.
0: My question is, why don't we see more of this in the market? Why don't we see more partnerships between the industries that are connected like this? Like you, you like yeah. I know some people like for me, and I know for my we have people that we work with, but why yes. don't we see it more in the general public that the people are like announcing or like showing that they're like grouped together with companies? Because then, as a consumer, wouldn't you think that would kind of give more of a you know what like? this person's also partnered with this person. They're both like very reputable companies and very reputable people. Like I sure. want to go to them for all my services because like, like like Mike was saying earlier, it's like a power team.
1: Mm-hmm. You know what? Let me, yeah. Alex, go go let, me, let me think my two cents. And then you tell me if you think otherwise as well. Yes. So James, what I think on this is that historically speaking, all professionals kind of stayed in their own lanes. So through a, a History of a transaction. You would see a person get a realtor in place to buy a home. They wanted to start that. You then go through the mortgage thing. You know, get your get your lawyer in place, and the insurance was at the end. And everyone kind of stayed in their lane. Where if you're a first time home buyer and you don't know what to do, you don't always know the right questions to ask or the people to go to. So they'll say, you know, find some find somebody you trust in that specific space and go after them instead of it being like almost our responsibility in essence or or let's take on some responsibility but you know, is and it say, not
0: though is it not our responsibility to well, kind of help that client it again, is it is
1: but in in but in our respected industries I've, this is this is where i think in in history we basically said previously you know i I'll, I'll help with your home insurance And then for example, for us, it'd be like, okay, make sure you also get life insurance because mortgage insurance products aren't maybe the best, right? Let's just say Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. So that would be like where we come in too. But I don't think people historically necessarily cared about that. It was like, okay, I got to do this, this, this. But it was almost at the last minute, like when you need it, right? It was like the lawyer said, okay, guys, make sure you get your binder for insurance in. And the reason I say that is because we still see that right now. So my perception on that comes from what we still see every single day, right? So that's, that's my thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, I, I would most likely agree with that. I, I do think that's correct. I do also think that it's, there, there's two other aspects to it. First is there's specialization. So if I'm a mortgage broker, um, it might be beneficial for me to have uh, an insurance broker and a lawyer in my office, right? Even if you could do that, I don't know if you could do to regulation. But um, I think it's probably a better idea to specialize in one thing in an office. And so the best example I could give of this is uh, a lawyer is a lawyer, but there are multiple different types of lawyers. There's family law, there's real estate law, it's corporate law. And we've seen this happen uh, with our clients where somebody was doing a real estate transaction. They just went to a family lawyer as opposed to a real estate lawyer. And we had a few problems with it, right? So there's that first aspect of specializing in the, the certain area. But secondly, I think it's just probably regulation. So I do know that real estate agents and mortgage brokers, they can have not co-licenses, but two licenses at a time. So I'll, for example, I could be a mortgage broker and also have a real estate license. So I could do your real estate transaction and then also uh, obtain the mortgage financing for you. I don't know what the regulation or the guidelines would be on me also being an insurance agent You and, can't, or, or can't having do it. insurance. Yeah.
1: So
0: yeah, there you go. It's a right?
2: conflict of interest right away. Especially exactly. If you,
0: I don't, I, for a hundred percent sure we cannot be an insurance broker and we can't be a mortgage agent at the same time. It's a conflict of interest.
2: For sure. And that, and that makes sense. Right. So I don't know. I, I would assume because of that by itself, you wouldn't be able to have an yeah, insurance not, agent and a mortgage broker in the same office, but you're talking about Like you need
0: to have it like on the same team, but I'm saying more like in the relationship of like how me and you have it, where like we like work together to help our clients. Cause, like yes. from, again, from a consumer standpoint, my customer experience is something that I like. obviously want to drive and make sure that my my customers and consumers are obviously having the best experience possible. Mm-hmm. So if they have a gap in something that they can't find in their purchase, right? They're buying a new car. Oh, here's the people that I work with for cars. Oh, I want to buy a new home? Well, here's the people that I work for car w- with homes. Oh, I want to look at restructuring my mortgage. Okay, here's the people that I work with with mortgages. For me, that is super important on, on yes. how I conduct my business Yes, because I feel like, again, if I can offer them More services. And again, I'm not the one offering it to them, but at least I can kind of nudge them in a little bit of a direction that, you know what, I already trust James with my insurance or I trust Mike with my insurance. I'm going to now trust them that they work with this person all the time for buying cars or buying homes or getting a mortgage or whatever it might be. I'm going to go to that person because, you know what, James trusts them and Mike trusts them. I'm going to trust them as well. It just, again, it's rather than like how, again, how difficult is it or how, nerve wracking might it be to go and buy a car or go and buy a home. And uh-huh. it's just you're walking into a dealership, you're walking into a real estate office and you don't know that person, right? So you're True. trying to build a connection with them. But if it's already kind of like semi-built from someone you already trust, like I feel like that's a little bit better of a connection. And you're like, you know what? James already kind of knows that person or I already yeah. trust James. So you know what? I'm gonna go to deal with who he deals with because obviously if James and or Mike's a stand up person and I trust them. I'm going to obviously, probably going to trust this person because why would he trust them and use them if they're not a good person as well?
2: I think. He, yeah. go ahead.
1: No, I was just going to. You know, I was just going to say. I know we had, we had just had a long conversation <laughs> on that, but I'm actually. Um, so th- those types of referral networks are huge. I'm actually in one myself with with a few people that I do try to help out with business. Yes, I. I what I'll say is until kind of joining networks and being a part of this where you actually have valued our referral partners, I think the general public is is technically kind of scared in sense, right? Because if you don't necessarily know, like, and trust someone, it's really hard to want to refer them or even change your habit as a person in the business too. Mm-hmm. So there's a big aspect of this that we all... Alex, like you said, we all kind of have our professions. We all stay in our lane. We all know what we're talking about with our own thing. But then to to properly complete that transaction and say, hey, guys, I just got your mortgage done. Um, if you want, you know, I, I do know a few people within insurance uh, that you might want to get home insurance quotes from while you're shopping around. Mm-hmm. And there's like this like easy way of like leading into that conversation, mm-hmm. um, which I, I love to do. I'm sure tr- I'm trying to do that with almost everything that I do, especially when I have different partners, mm-hmm. but I, I don't necessarily think that all people um, have the confidence to do that. Right. Like you have to sure. actually form that habit is what I'm trying to say.
0: Is it sure. confidence or is it straight up care for their client? Because I feel like a lot of people and I don't yeah. want to name names, but I feel like a lot of industries just want it. And especially now, I'm not saying all the time, but I feel like right now and like the kind of the way our workforce has really kind of developed over the last few years. Do you think people just want it off their desk and and gone? I don't want like, to have to deal with this any any further than I need to
2: sort of like a one and done. Yeah, I don't,
0: If I can deal with this in 30 uh, minutes, I want it off my desk. I don't need I don't need to deal with it anymore.
2: I think for some people, there's probably aspects of that. But I do think for the general, let's just say Canadian, we do care for each other more. Yeah. So so to Mike's point it, it, there is that confidence and there is like what I like to do is I do like to ease in to the conversation and I'll say okay uh you don't have to go to these people but in case you are looking for somebody here are some people that we've used in the past and that
1: we've referred to in the past that have helped our other clients right um, Well there and there's another quick aspect I'll point out and you guys might sure. feel the same way or might not but before I was kind of part of you know referral networks and and different things. Yes. I didn't want to upset somebody further by recommending them to someone if I didn't necessarily um feel confident in them. So it wasn't about doing my client a disservice by not referring them over to somebody else. What it was was saying, "Okay, I've done my job. You know, let them go find their own stuff so I don't I don't further uh, almost pry into like other ways that I can help." And I know people are going to say, "Well, that's not, you know, you're that's you're not prying, you're just helping. But there's the the flip side of that coin which says like I don't necessarily want to put them in a worse position by by recommending them over. Maybe them having um an experience with someone that I can't control. There's a part yes. of that as well. And then being, hey Mike, I called your your I called your um partner and you know, they, they weren't a good fit, for example. Right. That's I think right. people are just kind of scared with that in the back of their minds. Yeah. I think, I think I, that's, that's a great point. They're scared. And
2: then to add onto that, I think sometimes they might believe that you're getting some sort of cut or payment yes. for the referral. Right. Right. And pretty much hundred percent of the time we don't, right. It's just out of the goodness uh, of our, of our advice and our experience that we should at least give you an option. Right? and so it's funny because
1: nobody nobody alex nobody gets offended by that if we're actually doing it in like a kind way that's like i truly want to help you but it's funny how like until you get into that zone people yes. uh we don't we don't do we don't always do it that's right that's exactly it yeah
0: i i think for me like when i'm looking out for like network partners and stuff that's the biggest thing is like am I going to trust you with my client? And I say this to literally every single person I work with. Yes. I want it to be like if I'm the one selling them or educating them on whatever it might be. If you're buying a new car, I want it to be like I'm, buying, or I'm selling my client a car. If you're buying a home, I want it to be like I'm selling them that home because at the end of the day, like values and characteristics that I have, I want to make sure my client's also being treated the same way if they're going to do that through a, a network that I have because at the end of the day, if a client of mine goes to someone else that i referred them to and they have a bad experience it it looks bad on my end because they're like oh james you work with this person i had a really bad experience with that person and then it looks bad on my character right because i partner i have like a partnership with them that's right so it's like i'm extension. very picky i'm very picky with who i deal with because i again i never want that situation ever to
2: arise absolutely because it's an extension of of your service too if you If you, let's say, provide great service, but then you refer them off to another party and that party is not giving up to your up to par, then uh, they're going to have they're going to it's going to reflect back onto you. And so I think it's super important to be picky with who you choose, like like you just said, James. Yeah, exactly. But
0: kind of wrapping this up, um, kind of the last question I have anyways Mm -hmm. is. Let's say now we've already talked about the last five years, but maybe let's kind of move forward and let's talk about the next five years. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you kind of see is going to start happening in the market? Like, do you like, is this because I'm reading all these articles and whatnot. Do you think that we're at the bottom of what's going to happen? Do you think things are going to start coming down even more? Mm -hmm. Do you think we're like kind of like stagnating a bit and now we're going to go up again? Like, Where do you see this market kind of going with mortgages and real estate in the next, let's say, five years?
2: Yeah, so that's that's a fantastic question, first of all, because it's on everybody's mind. It's on, should I buy now, should I buy later? Um, in general, the demand has reduced a little bit, but the supply issue is still there. So in Canada, especially in Southern Ontario, we have a big, big supply issue. And once interest rates stabilize or even potentially start to, to decrease, I think the demand is going to skyrocket once again. And we've already been seeing that just up leading up to the spring mark here, a lot more transactions are happening. And to add onto that, immigration in the next three to five years in Canada is massive, right? We're expecting in the next three years, over a million immigrants. I actually wrote an article about this on our Tried and True uh, website, where all of these immigrants, um, a lot of them get situated Especially in Southern Ontario. So, that demand where we already had low supply is just going to increase even further. In other words, looking forward three to five to 10 years, even, most likely real estate is going to continue to increase. There's no guarantee, but if you just use simple supply and demand, in this case, demand largely outweighs supply. And so, we should expect to have that increase. Adding on to that, if interest rates begin to decrease affordability is going to increase again affordability is going to go up and more people are going to be able to afford the homes again so there's just going to be more more uh, buyers in the market so that's that's what i would say there is some speculation about the market decreasing like the real estate market prices um uh trending downwards a little bit further but i think that was all before what we saw happen with the banking situation in the United States. I was
0: literally about to ask you that question. Yeah. Do you think the banking debacle is going to change what's going to go on now because they just the Bank of Canada just said earlier in March that they are not going to increase rates right now. And then literally that same weekend, I believe they had all these bank issues down in the States where they basically the government had to basically like seize two. was it two
2: banks or was it three Two for sure, right? Two for sure. uh, Silicon Valley and uh, First Republic, I believe, and Signature Bank is potentially having issues as well. But uh, yeah, that's going to have a huge impact because a lot of those issues of their liquidity issues and and essentially failing as a bank was due to rising interest rates and rising interest rates or raising interest rates so quickly. So, if we look at it from a macroeconomic level, from the Federal Reserve and the Bank of Canada. You start to think, okay, inflation is really bad right now, and it is bad. But what is worse, inflation or uh, bank runs upon bank runs? Because once one bank fails, it starts to—it's a domino effect, right? It's not just one. Well, you saw it. That one,
0: like I think
2: it was Saturday,
0: the first one went, and then literally Sunday, I kept seeing like all these other ones were going, and I'm like, whoa, this yeah. is. Like this is like, and they said they've never seen anything like that in a weekend where like all these major banks all of a sudden just basically failed instantly.
2: Exactly. But exactly.
0: again, but I think we were talking about this earlier too. I was telling Mike this, I read an article about it. Did you know that one of the banks, Silicon Valley, I guess mm-hmm. the week before paid out all their executives, a massive <laughs> bonus. And then, cause they knew it was coming like, and how does that ethically like allowed to happen? I don't, I think the, they're going to get, I think they're going to get reprimanded for that somehow mm. some way i think they will because I, I don't think you're allowed
2: to do that i mean they if it's the if it's the executives giving bonuses to themselves i guess who can really stop them but criminally is there some criminal intent there that's that's up for the the lawyers in the united yeah. states to for, for the law to to determine in the united states exactly exactly so, but. yeah but it could have a huge effect and and if if we continue to see things like this, we should expect interest rates to decrease and decrease rather quickly. Interesting.
0: Yeah, because I think that's, I I read an article that basically said, like, basically half of Canadians, if it raised any more, they would probably be have to sell their home. And another article I read, too, is that basically anyone that bought a home since COVID Mm -hmm. might be stuck in this home, because to get out of this house now, they will either lose money, or it's just not,
2: feasible to get out of a home that they bought in the last three years yeah that's that's definitely a thing that a concern that is that is arising right now because if you bought a home not so much in 2020 but let's say 2021 and 2022 that home price might be lower than where you purchased it and that's what a lot of people
0: are saying right now because again um we went we didn't go over the article by desjardins but desjardins Release an article um on home on housing prices and let's just use hamilton for example Mm -hmm. they predicted that by the end of 2023 the hamilton burlington area is going to decrease another 35 percent and there's areas in ontario that they said up to 54 percent decrease on home prices so imagine you bought a home two years ago and now Mm -hmm. you're basically saying there's already been decreases a little bit Cause even you said from February of last year to February of this year, we've already seen a little bit of a decrease. But imagine another like even 30% decrease from there. Like imagine what your ho- like, what you bought your home for, and then now your home's worth like 30% less in like a year. Yeah. It's like the flip side of how when COVID started, you bought a house before COVID and it's gone up like triple. <laughs> and now it's like the opposite. Now it's like going down triple.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, it's 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 a tough situation because then at the same time, you are in a scenario where your mortgage potentially is actually inflated, a larger, is a larger <laughs> balance than your home value, right? So I, this is something I call I call checkmate bankruptcy because if you, if you try to sell, you sell for less than you purchased, and now you can't pay up your mortgage. And if your mortgage payments have went up for, due to variable rate or having to renew into a, a different fixed rate, and you can't afford those payments you You essentially are gonna gonna end up in a bankruptcy situation. So it's very, very tough, and I, I really feel for people who are in that situation, there are some ways to navigate it and try to uh, potentially you know make the best of a bad situation. Uh, so we, we try to help people out in that regard, but sometimes there, there isn't too much you can do, but you always have to take a look, right? You have to take a look and uh, see see what you can do for people. And that's why we get the experts like yourself involved in those situations. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's exactly what we're here for. Because like I was saying before with, with the other topics, you don't know what you don't know. Before I got into you know, the mortgage brokerage side, I was in finance for uh, over four years. I didn't know all of the avenues we had and all of the different lenders we could
1: offer to help out Canadians. So
2: yeah, definitely. Mike, do you got anything else for Alex
1: before we wrap up? no i i I really want to thank him for coming on i mean we did uh this has probably been very close if not the closest to our longest episode too i think
0: yes it has and you know what i like i said i really want to thank alex as well for taking the time to come out i know we had a little bit of technical difficulties early on the week (laughs) and we had to kind of reschedule because it wasn't just kind of working out for us and we kind of wanted to recharge and make sure to get the vibes back. But I think the vibes have been great today. I think Alex, you've given a lot of information, but you know what I like about this episode? I like that you've asked questions too. And we've been able to kind of relate that back to the insurance side of things. Cause I do like when you kind of talk and stuff and you give the information, but I like how we've kind of wrapped it like Mike was saying earlier. We kind of did it full circle. You gave your points and then you kind of asked us questions about the insurance side of things, which, again, I really appreciate because, again, that kind of gives you more knowledge and your clients more knowledge moving forward. That you be like, you know what? I didn't know this prior to the podcast. Mm -hmm. Now I can go back to my clients and tell them this stuff and educate them a little bit more um, on
2: the insurance side of things for sure well first off thank you very much guys for having me on this has been fantastic um but but just building on your point there it's it's fantastic to be able to come on this podcast with other professionals and then like you said get those tidbits of information now i'm not i'm not going to be the insurance expert that's what i'm going to refer off to you guys for but at least i can be aware of those instances and and uh scenarios that tend to come up so yeah I really appreciate uh, you coming on and, and learning those things to be able to help help our clients, right? Exactly, and vice versa. But yeah.
0: We'll be posting this, like I said, next uh, Tuesday when every episode comes out. So if you guys haven't Fantastic. checked this out already, make sure you guys check out on all the streaming services, Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Google, the list goes on and on, YouTube as well, for Perfect. audio for now anyways. Um, like I said, Tuesdays, 12 p.m. Eastern time, we basically are released And for Alex, we'll be putting all of his socials and website in the um, description as well. So you want to check him out. uh, Definitely definitely. give him a look and give up and give a look at tried and true mortgages in Hamilton there. And again, if you have any questions for him, definitely reach out to him as
2: well. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. No worries.
0: Thank you guys for tuning in this week. And we'll check you guys next week on the Broker Breakdown.